So our next speaker is from North Carolina, um, and it's Dr. Joe Iron, um, who who is uh, sort of doing double duty here, and um, he's going to talk to us about what's new. He's going to get the chance to look into his crystal ball and share that with us and tell us what the Stark study is likely to show us and <laughs> other things. So welcome back, Joe. Thank you. Um, yeah, we're going to start with gas prices and go from there. Um, so so uh, I'm going to try to talk about the future the best I can. But but um, as, as some famous politician said, you know, predictions are difficult, especially when the future is involved. Um, so so a couple of things that I, I, I want to say. And, and one of the things that, that's kind of controversial is this idea um, uh, whether, um, you know, test and treat uh, or uh, treatment as prevention. I, I truly believe that patients who are treated and su suppressed are, are less infectious. I, I would uh, put the caveat that, um, that most of the data we have are, are in, in heterosexual couples, but, but probably would apply to other kind of sexual coupling. But um, I, I think the idea that we're going to treat our way out of the epidemic, I think, is, is um, at least... In the next year or two, I'd be surprised if we find evidence for that. So my first prediction is that, that HIV infection in the United States will actually not decrease, unfortunately. And I think while I fully support what the CDC is doing, I, I think that um, uh, we're testing a lot of people that are at low risk, and, and we need to get out in the trenches and, and, and figure out how to test people that are at higher risk, because that's a real challenge. Um, these are data now old from um, the CDC, um, but basically showing that over many, many years, um, the, the approximate number of new cases has been uh, very, very stable and around 55,000. And, and, and I would predict that that will stay the same. And unfortunately, I don't know what the, your clinic populations are like, but certainly ours, the number of young uh, men who have sex with men, especially young men who have sex with men of color that, that are, are newly diagnosed is like truly uh, frightening. And if you go back and you look at this paper, it really is the um, uh, men who have sex with men group that we're, we're actually seeing a rise in um, uh, uh, prevalence uh, over time or, or in this case, uh, uh, incidence. Um, and unfortunately, um, HIV, I think, as everybody knows, certainly speaking to a Ryan White treating audience, uh, you probably don't even need to see these data. But, but when I saw them, they were certainly disconcerting. Um, uh, HIV in the U.S. is clearly a disease of the, of the poor. Um, and this slide here is just looking at uh, a prevalence in, in U.S. poverty areas. Um, and this is a census tract where over 20% uh, or more of the residents were below poverty level. And you can see the, the um, uh, prevalence of HIV is similar to m multiple um, African uh, countries and, and Haiti, which is obviously one of the poorest countries in the world. And then if you look at HIV prevalence uh, by household income, which is here, um, it really is uh, very, very uh, uh, disconcerting. So um, unfortunately, uh, I don't think uh, we're yet going to see a change in new HIV diagnoses, certainly not in the next uh, year or two. Um, so uh, when to start? Uh, will treatment guidelines change? And I think this gets to the debate that we were, were just having, and I don't know if you, you guys need me to go um, into this more or not. I, I think probably treatment guidelines will change, and we'll see actually maybe a higher percentage of the expert panels 
lobbying for um, an earlier start to treatment, though I do appreciate arguments on, on both, both sides of this. These are our current guidelines that you're aware of, and this is, we've been talking about this um, kind of 50-50 split, literally, about uh, uh, above 500 uh, being a kind of an optional time uh, for some people and, and uh, uh, more strong um, uh, a, w a willingness to treat in the other 50%. But even in, in the 350 to 500, while everyone um, on the panel voted um, uh, for uh, treatment, you, you can see that kind of the strength of the recommendation was not actually um, uh, an A, which means strong recommendation, that for some of the uh, uh, people on the panel, it was, a, uh, it was a, uh, a moderate recommendation, reflecting maybe some of the sentiments of the gentleman at the microphone on, uh, on this side of the room. Um, there, there are, um, of course, reasons uh, for people to be treated regardless of CD4, and we kind of went through them when we went through the cases, pregnancy, HIV-associated nephropathy, hepatitis B is a clear indication. And actually, if you look at the IESUSA guidelines, they even listed a few more, such as very high viral load, hepatitis C, cardiovascular disease, and, and they also list a, a symptomatic acute HIV in, in their guidelines. Um, so um, here are the, the ISUSA guidelines. Um, uh, this, you know, uh, uh, came uh, kind of directly from uh, a slide that Mike had, so I'm going to uh, just skip to that. Um, of course, if people are symptomatic, that, that's an uh, obvious reason to treat. Um, these are the HPTN052 data, which you've seen uh, previously, um, I guess, in, in, in the uh, context of this uh, conference. The, the dramatic effect on, on uh, treatment, in fact, the, the, the single transmission occurred actually quite early in the immediate therapy arm. And then there was a difference in, in clinical events. Um, so this is the first randomized study that actually looked at treating above 350 versus waiting to go um, to uh, 200. They actually didn't wait to less than 200. They, they waited to less than uh, 250. Um, uh, and in this case, there was a difference in clinical events. It was predominantly in tuberculosis in countries in southern Africa, uh, India, Thailand, where, where, where most of the patients were, um, uh, were enrolled. So I think what you'll see in those guidelines if they come out is a, a stronger um, uh, emphasis on, on treatment, at least uh, uh, less than 500, where, where there is really almost no equivocation uh, amongst any of the panel members. Uh, uh, we did a study, uh, Michelle Funk at, at UNC, looking at the Cascade cohort. This is a special cohort because this is a cohort where we actually know when the people were infected. So one of the big problems with the NA Accord or the ARTCC um, or any of the other observational cohorts data is you actually don't know when the person was infected. So there's this concept called lead time bias where it actually looks like people who were started earlier uh, uh, do better because in effect um, you're, you're, um, the, the patients who are started, quote, later with lower CD4 cell counts have actually had the disease longer and there's no really way to control for that. Um, because um, you don't know when they're infected. However, in the Cascade cohort, we actually have a seroconversion date or an estimated seroconversion date on all of the patients. 
Um, and what we found was actually very similar um, to uh, the RCC data, where we did see um, a uh, modest benefit uh, at between 350 uh, to 500. The hazard ratio was uh, individuals who got treatment were about 25% less likely to develop an AIDS event or, or death. Um, it approached statistical significance, though didn't quite make statistical significance, again, because the study was somewhat smaller um, than the, those larger cohorts. Curiously, um, if, uh, if you look at death alone, um, our data look a little bit like NA Accord, at least in the 350 to 500 group. Uh, you can see there was almost a, um, uh, uh, individuals that had... Um, that were treated uh, in the 350 to 500 range were, had about a 50% um, improvement in survival. Um, and that was statistically significant. Um, on the other hand, if you look above 500, um, we really saw nothing, at, you know, going to the, that gentleman's point at the microphone on, on my, my right. Um, the other thing uh, that we were able to do um, in the cascade uh, was actually look at the number needed to treat to prevent an AIDS event uh, uh, or, or death. Um, so the number needed to treat to prevent an AIDS event or death was, was 34. Um, and I've heard people say, oh, that's so many people. And then other people say, oh, that's so few people. Um, this is the kind of number needed to treat for statins, antihypertensives, aspirin. Obviously, these are slightly less expensive than, than um, antiretroviral therapy. Um, the number needed to treat to prevent a death was uh, estimated to be about 70 patients, 74 patients to be precise. So, so I think the guidelines are going to change modestly. I think there'll be stronger um, uh, 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 language in, in the guidelines to treat everyone less than 500, but I think it'll still be above 500. I think there'll still be some equivocation, and we'll wait for the, the start study that people have talked about. Um, I'm going to just skip this. So what about the new drugs? Um, uh, we, we talked about ropivirine. We kind of went into ropivirine in, in, in quite a bit of detail. Um, it was kind of a stealth approval, I felt. Kind of, um, they, they, unfortunately, they were, uh, ropivirine was approved at the same time as tilapavir and bocepavir, um, the two HCV drugs. Um, so uh, I'm not sure how ropivirine or edurant is, is really going to um, affect our, our practice. Um, I, I've showed you the ECHO and THRIVE studies uh, already, and, and what I wanted to show in, in particular uh, was this issue of um, uh, uh, the kind of dichotomy between uh, virologic failure and uh, adverse events. So in this box here are, are treatment failures, uh, again, combined data from the two studies. Here's virologic failure. Um, so it was four and a half a little bit over 4.5% versus 9%. These numbers, again, are a little different if you look at the um, snapshot analysis. But then if you look at discontinuations uh, due to adverse events, it's essentially flipped around the other way. Uh, there were more discontinuations for adverse events on efavirenz and less on um, uh, uh, ropivirine. Here you can look at some of those adverse events that um, uh, were, were mentioned by, by one of the uh, audience members. Um, if you look at discontinuations for adverse events, again, um, uh, favoring uh, uh, ropivirine. And if you look at the neurologic and neuropsych uh, adverse events, there really was a difference. Um, it, it's certainly not zero in the ropivirine arm, but it's about twice as many, roughly, for the neurologic events and, and not quite as um, 
about 8% more um, for the psychiatric events. And uh, there was a remarkably less rash, which is somewhat surprising since we always think of NNRTIs as, as leading uh, to rash. So you have this kind of better adverse event uh, profile. Um, but then if you focus on this box, and maybe you can see it best in your handout, the resistance data are, are again, really uh, are, are very much in favor of efavirenz. And so here, um, if you look at the, the proportion of patients that did not have a resistance mutation when they failed, only about 20 29% or, or, or um, on ropivirine had no mutation, meaning 70% had at least one mutation. 63% um, had an, uh, um, an NNRTI mutation, and 68% had a uh, NRTI mutation, mostly um, a 3TC or FTC resistance mutation. So the number of patients that had actually mutations to both non-nukes and nukes was higher. And then, as pointed out, there's a new mutation that you need to, uh, I don't know if you need to remember it, but you need to know that it's different. Most of the patients who failed Gopivirine had this E138K mutation, and as was brought up by one of the questioners, that does appear to, to decrease susceptibility to ectovirine. So there's this issue of cross-resistance to ectovirine. So um, I guess my prediction for the future is that um, Ropivirine um, will have a very modest effect, at least initially, uh, um, on the market. And, and I think uh, some of us will, will use it in certain situations and, and uh, will learn about whether um, our patients actually have fewer symptoms and we'll see whether uh, uh, in the context of clinical practice where the patient knows what they're taking and we can instruct them in a way that um, is uh, most useful, uh, whether we'll see a, a better success in terms of virologic failure. Um, and here's the resistance mutations. Um, and it, it, you can see um, with um, uh, real pivoting, you really get this very large scattershot uh, of, of mutations. Um, uh, not only do you see 138K, but you can see multiple other mutations, whereas with Efavirenz, you pretty much see 103N. Um, this mutation you're probably not very familiar with, um, uh, the 106M, that occurs in subtype C virus, so you, so you wouldn't see it here. So, again, Efavirenz, you kind of get predictably the 103N. With Ropivirine, there really is an array of mutations. And then, again, um, you can see that uh, with Ropivirine, in terms of nuke mutations, um, you see both the M184V and M184I, which is an interesting one. But again, more patients had 3TC or FTC resistance. Um, well, what about um, other new drugs? What about our crystal ball future? What about L-Vitegravir? L-Vitegravir is an integrase inhibitor. And Cobacistat, you may know, is a drug that um, is a ritonavir-like booster, except it has no... Um, anti-HIV activity. So it has similar effects to ritonavir, but has no anti-HIV activity. Um, so um, L-vitegravir, an integrase inhibitor, will be combined with uh, cobacistat, and that's, um, those drugs are under study. L-vitegravir is another integrase inhibitor. Um, it requires boosting. So unlike raltegravir, uh, which doesn't require boosting, L-vitegravir does. Uh, however, boosted, it's clearly a one-staley um, uh, uh, drug, um, and its initial development was complicated by the need for ritonavir. Um, but with this other drug, Cobacistat, which I'll tell you about, um, obviously ritonavir is not needed. Um, it does appear to be well tolerated in early trials. It probably has a, 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 even a lower barrier to resistance than, um, than raltegravir and, and is cross-resistant uh, with raltegravir. 
Um, this is Covacistat. So Covacistat is an alternative to uh, ritonavir. It doesn't have any uh, ritonavir-like. Uh, uh, it has no HIV activity. However, it does boost the levels uh, substantially. Um, it's less of an inducer than um, uh, ritonavir. So while it does have many drug-drug interactions, it has fewer drug-drug interactions, and it's a very um, easy-to-manipulate chemical, um, so it's easy to co-formulate uh, uh, with other drugs. Um, and these are data. Um, actually, uh, some of these data are actually now published. Um, this is uh, Elvitegravir uh, with Cobacistat versus Efavirenz. These are very small studies, um, uh, literally um, uh, just 45 or 50 patients uh, per per treatment arm. But you can see similar activity of uh, uh, L-vitegravir, cobacistat, both given with uh, tenofovir, FTC. And then here's um, adazanavir, uh, ritonavir, compared to adazanavir boosted by cobacistat. Um, and again, you can see very similar activity in, in these relatively small um, uh, studies. And there, there are now large phase three studies of both these combinations that are underway. Um, this is a drug that you may have heard less about, dolutegravir. This is another integrase inhibitor. Um, it was formerly known as uh, Shinogi GSK572. Um, uh, um, so dolutegravir can, uh, is being studied in treatment-naive patients. Again, the reason why my slide says one to two years is both elvitegravir and dolutegravir are probably going to be available in, in two years uh, or so, or maybe a year and a half instead of one year. Um, this uh, uh, dolutegravir has been studied head-to-head -head with efavirenz in treatment-naive patients, um, as little as um, uh, 10 milligrams uh, 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 once a day, uh, but the dose that's going to move forward is actually 50 milligrams once a day. And what was seen in a, a randomized uh, open-label trial, um, you can see uh, this integrase inhibitor, much like um, raltegravir and elvitegravir, very rapid suppression. So at 16 weeks, 90% of the patients treated with dolutegravir plus tenofovir FTC uh, were suppressed less than 50. Um, and the efavirenz folks hadn't yet caught up, though they, they, they do catch up when you get out to week uh, 24. In fact, if we look at the 24-week data, again, 90% of the patients treated with uh, dolutegravir um, are suppressed less than 50. These are treatment-naive patients. Um, uh, this is a once-a-day drug. It doesn't require boosting, um, and there is a very large uh, phase three uh, trial that's, that's going forward uh, in treatment-naive patients. What might be, um, uh, so all these new drugs kind of were jockeying around. Um, are, are any of them going to be combined into a single tablet regimen? So will we have something to actually um, uh, compete with or, or give as an alternative to the fixed dose of efavirenz, tenofovir, and FTC? Um, and again, it's really uh, one of the real reasons I think we can talk about early treatment is because treatment is really very simple now for many, many patients, uh, one pill once a day. Um, and these are the data from the, the uh, Alabama um, uh, clinic uh, looking at kind of the mixture of their initial regimens over time. And basically what this graph is telling you is that this regimen, the fixed dose of Favrin's, uh, tenofovir and FTC really by 2007 had become by far and away the, the um, 
most commonly prescribed first-line therapy uh, in the Alabama clinic, and all the other alternatives kind of got compressed into this little maybe 20 to 25 percent zone here. And you'll recall from our, our clinical cases, when you guys were given a choice in a pretty straightforward case, it was about 90 percent uh, went with the fixed-dose combination uh, with the Favarins. Um, so by August, as Mike pointed out, um, there will be a single tablet regimen with Lopiverine, Tenofovir, and FTC. Um, you've seen that, uh, the data from the head-to-head -head blinded studies. Um, it will be a relatively small pill. Lopiverine at 25 milligrams literally could fit on the tip of your, your finger. It's the kind of pill that if you drop it, you'd lose it. Um, and I, I think if you uh, drop a, you know, an Efavirenz tablet, you, you you wouldn't lose it. You'd find it pretty pretty quickly. Um, so we don't really know the size of the single tablet regimens, but it'll be uh, similar to the size of a, 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 a Tenofovir FTC pill. August is, is uh, I said by the fall, but maybe by August. There is this head-to-head -head comparison um, that Mike mentioned, which is an open-label head-to-head comparison. Um, and the problem with um, the earlier study that was mentioned, again, the audience kind of gave most of my talk, um, is this issue with ropivirine with food, whereas efavirenz wasn't given with food, so patients in the blinded studies were taking medicines at least twice and maybe even three times a day. Um, uh, so it does require food. Um, it also has a, um, a problem with uh, proton pump inhibitors. So um, uh, the, the, the people that were telling you uh, about all the problems with um, atazanavir and proton pump inhibitors will now have to come back to your office and explain to you why that isn't so much a problem because uh, they'll be marketing uh, ropivirine. Um, so that, that is one potential, one pill once a day. Then L-vitegravir, cobacistat, FTC, and 3TC have also been combined in a single pill. That is slightly smaller than a, a triplet pill. It's been affectionately named the quad. That's not, I don't think, going to be its actual name. Um, and it, but it's being compared head-to-head -head again. This uh, quadruple um, uh, tablet regimen with the fixed-dose uh, efavirenz for FTC. This study is fully enrolled. Um, it'll have a bunch of interesting comparisons, antiretroviral activity, lipid effects, CNS tolerability. And, and again, I'm not sure when this will be available, but my, my, and this, this is just Joe Iron's guess. This is not based on any kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneur or, or venture capitalist who, who would know a lot more than I would. But um, I think it's probably fall 2012, so another year, year and a half or so. Um, and then finally, um, Dalutegravir, which is, the, um, is uh, being looked at it as a, a fixed-dose combination with a Bacavir and 3TC. Uh, and it's obvious why this combination would go together. So this will be a single-tablet regimen. Um, and it's, right now there's a large head-to-head -head study of Dalutegravir plus a Bacavir 3TC, again, versus the fixed-dose combination of, of Efavirenz, Sinopher, and FTC. This is a blinded study, so they are going to be taking a few more pills, but there isn't this issue of food, so they can take the pills at the same time if they choose to. Um, and that's also fully enrolled, and we'll have some of these very interesting comparisons that I, that I mentioned. Um, and in particular, I think the antiviral activity will, will the uh, potent integrase inhibitor perhaps compensate for a Bacavir 3TC at high viral loads? Um, and then what about new drugs for experienced patients? So if you're holding your breath for a new drug for experienced patients, you should breathe. 
Um, just don't bother holding your breath. We, we, we will get dolutegravir. It does actually have activity in raltegravir uh, experienced patients. Uh, in uh, uh, small studies um, uh, called the Viking study, there were two cohorts of patients. Um, what we did is we took patients that had clearly had raltegravir resistance. Um, they um, then uh, stopped their raltegravir and added dolutegravir, so they had functional monotherapy for 10 days. And then on day 11, they were allowed to optimize. So we didn't do a placebo-controlled study. Um, instead, we felt like everybody should get the active dolutegravir because of in vitro data. And, and basically, um, we did two cohorts. One was once a day, and the second was twice a day because we felt like we actually needed higher levels. And if you gave... 100 milligrams once a day, there was an absorption issue. So we had to split the dose to twice a day. And in cohort two, we actually insisted that all patients have at least one fully active drug to optimize two. And, and basically, what you can see is that certain raltegravir resistance mutations, like 143, for example, or 155, and there's no reason to memorize these, um, dolutegravir is very active. And against more raltegravir-resistant viruses, Dalyutegravir is less active. There's a decrease in activity, though um, not to the same degree as we saw with raltegravir. Um, this is giving you an idea of, of the uh, full change in the two cohorts to dalyutegravir. The full change to raltegravir was, was very, very high. Essentially, the median was above the uh, cutoff. And what we saw was that, especially when we gave it twice a day, you can see that Almost all patients had at least a five-fold response or fell below 400 copies in a 10-day period. So almost every patient had at least some antiviral response, despite all of them having uh, raltegravir resistance mutations. Um, so I'll, I'm going to skip for the sake of time. So now there's a very large uh, study of, of uh, a large study of dolutegravir in treatment experience patients. Um, it's an open-label study. Again, we're not going to take raltegravir-resistant patients and, and have them get a placebo. Um, it'll be a single-arm study, seven days of that functional monotherapy, and then optimization at day eight. And hopefully um, uh, there'll be a, a compassionate access study soon. We don't have many patients that require um, uh, <coughs> uh, salvage from, uh, with raltegravir-resistance. Um, but we, we, we all have one or two, I imagine, that, that are going to need this new drug. Um, well, what about pre-exposure prophylaxis? I don't know if you had to talk about PrEP or not here uh, at this meeting, um, uh, uh, but the IPREX study was a study in uh, 2,500 uh, high-risk uh, men who have sex with men. It was tenofovir FTC versus placebo, and they looked at uh, HIV seroconversion. And probably all of you are familiar with the fact that um, tenofovir FTC um, had a uh, substantial protective effect, not perfect, obviously. This is seroconversion. Note the scale is up to 10% here. This is not 0 to 100. It's 0 to, to, to 10%, <coughs> sorry, uh, and this is over approximately two and a half year, year period here. Uh, these are the number of uh, uh, infections in the randomized period, so there was about a uh, 45 to 50% uh, uh, protection rate, and almost all of the patients who, uh, not patients, but individuals um, who were high risk, who seroconverted, had, had very poor adherence. Um, so this is the, it was a 44% reduction. This is the confidence intervals relatively wide. 
Uh, and these were, you know, young, predominantly young men, men who had sex with men. Um, there was no difference in um, uh, uh, HSV2 acquisition between the two groups. I, you're not supposed to read this. It's just to let you know that the CDC actually has already offered interim guidance on pre-exposure prophylaxis for men who have sex with men. Um, what about women? Uh, and this is the CAPRISA study, which was done in South Africa by uh, Slim Karim uh, and um, uh, his wife, Karisha Karim. Uh, and this was a, a study of a gel. So a tenofovir gel gave, given uh, in the perichoidal period before sex and after sex. And, and basically, uh, the bottom line was uh, in these young high-risk women, uh, there was a substantial protective effect of the um, uh, tenofovir gel uh, with, a, uh, again, a decrease of around um, 40, uh, 40 to 39 to 40 percent. So there was a clear um, improvement, a clear decrease in transmission uh, with the tenofovir gel, though, again, obviously, obviously not perfect. Um, and then um, uh, surprisingly, so when we saw the IPREX trial and we saw that fixed dose Tenofovir FTC had this effect. Uh, I sort of thought the cat was out of the bag, that the PrEP studies uh, um, with Tenofovir FTC would all be successful. But this is the FEMPREP style. So this is a study of PrEP, again, with Tenofovir FTC, but this time in women. Um, uh, almost 4,000 women were intended to be enrolled. About 2,000 were enrolled. Again, it was Tenofovir FTC versus placebo. This was oral, not vaginal. This was an oral. And there were exactly uh, 56 infections divided. There were 56 infections divided equally between the two arms. There's actually no beneficial effect to Tenofovir FTC. And this totally surprised me. I, I would have never predicted this in, in a million years. And there, there are a lot of uh, reasons for this. And they actually had to stop the trial uh, for futility because they were so close. They knew that even if they enrolled uh, 4,000 women, they wouldn't be able to demonstrate a difference. Um, and then finally, the HIV cure. Well, will HIV cure ever happen? Um, well, it has happened. Um, this man right here, he was cured. Um, he's from Berlin. He was cured uh, through a combination of, uh, of uh, bone marrow transplants. Um, uh, he, he was transplanted with uh, cells that actually lacked the CCR5 receptor. In addition, he had pretty severe graft-versus-host disease. And if you think about it, the graft doesn't have HIV. The host does. Graft-versus-host disease might not be a bad thing if you happen to have HIV. Um, but we have all these problems. If latently infected T cells that last probably for, for have a half-life of around four years and actually probably replenish themselves. We have HIV in macrophage and microglial cells in the brain, and we have tissue compartments. And Bob Silicano, for those of you who heard his talk, I, I obviously wasn't here, but I've heard his talk. He thinks that even some bone marrow stem cells are getting infected, and, and obviously that would be a huge issue. Um, there's the long half-life of the latently infected cells. Um, he, he thought that even if we had perfect therapy, um, it might take as many as 70 years to eradicate just that one reservoir. And that's certainly, almost certainly not the only reservoir. But there is hope. It's not going to happen in a year or two. Um, there are uh, uh, experimental drugs that seem to be able to release HIV from latently infected cells. There are actually enzymes that are being engineered that may be able to either uh, cut out or inactivate HIV DNA. Um, gene therapy is being done where they can actually take C CD4 cells from a patient 
and turn them into CD4 cells that don't have the CCR5 receptor on the surface. So that's a gene therapy experiment. Um, maybe there are toxins that will kill cells that make HIV, and perhaps we can figure out how to make a better um, HIV uh, therapeutic uh, vaccine. So unfortunately, the cure is definitely not going to be in the next one to two years. Um, and that's my talk. Thank you. I don't know if we have time no, no, for questions. So, yeah, we have time for some questions. And um, I might um, just kind of add parenthetically, it's kind of cool how this conference has evolved because we started off with Bob Silicano presenting a lot of this. We ended with this. We talked this morning about the PrEP story but didn't have the data. And we even mentioned the Berlin patient yesterday. So a lot of this, these themes are coming back. Yeah, Bruce. Great talk. <laughs> um, does the 130, the, with regard to ropivirine, does the 138K um, mutation confer decreased susceptibility to efavirenz? Yes, absolutely. So, so you can't, you can't, you're not going to be able to salvage it no. that way. No. And, and presumably you could do it the other way, though. Uh, presumably you could, actually. Um, um, again, the, the um, uh, I think the way the company that has both ropivirine and etravirine is approaching it is ropivirine is for treatment naives and uh, etravirine is for treatment experience, but they actually have very, very similar resistance profiles. And, and certainly in vitro, uh, ropivirine is active against viruses with the 103N. So um, you certainly could um, at least theoretically go that other direction, efavirenz to ropivirine. Um, uh, it, it hasn't been done yet, obviously. Right. And because remember back in the day when the TMC-125 versus 278, that is, etravirine versus ropivirine, they elected to move forward with uh, etravirine because it was a further ahead in development, but both drugs were developed to be active against resistant virus. One thing I just saw this morning, actually, in a news release is that um, Tebatech has now partnered with Gilead to create a single tablet, darunavir covacistat, so that it'll be one tablet once a day for getting darunavir that will bypass ritonavir. Uh, so that's that's in the works. It's probably in another year and a half away. Yeah, it's good news. Yeah, please. Thank you very much for a very nice talk about the IPRIX study. Many of my patients have been doing this IPRIX experiment long time before the IPRIX study came in. The MSM partners, they've been using what they call two blue pills. One is, of course, Truvada, very well known, and the second blue pill, I'm sure you know what the blue pill is. Right. The Viagra. Right, sure. Yeah. They have been doing that. That's <laughs> two a blue one. pills. Yeah, two blue pills. They have been doing that for a long time. And the second thing, one picked out of this so-called Berlin patient, he's not from Berlin, he's from San Francisco. Well, Thank you. He, the transplant was in Berlin. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, why right. he said the Berlin I, I will say that, that, you know, this issue of whether you can take tenofovir FTC intermittently and be effective as PrEP is a really hotly debated uh, question. Um, it turns out in order to get intracellular levels of tenofovir diphosphate, which is obviously the active drug, you actually have to take steady state dosing um, for probably at least three or four days or maybe as much as a week to actually build up intracellular levels. So. Um, it's possible that what your patients are protecting themselves with is, is really just the FTC component of that one uh, blue pill. Um, when they gave um, uh, intermittent prep to, to monkeys and, and then exposed them, it actually didn't work. 
Um, uh, and they actually had to give a dose after the exposure in order for it to be effective. So um, whether you can extrapolate the IPEX results to, well, I'll just take the, the uh, Tanafer FTC when I'm at risk, um, that may or may not work. Um, that, um, so I think that's an important point. My other question. In the IPEX study, these men, were they using condoms also uh -huh. consistently? Well, they certainly were counseled to use condoms, but I think the condom use was actually uh, very low. And, and if you look at the, you know, th there were some very, very high-risk individuals in that study. That, that was an entry criteria, was high risk, but they did, they were all encouraged to use condoms in every one of these studies. Oh, thank yep. you. Okay. Two other quick questions here, Joe. Um, one is going back to the talk before, but you, you very nicely pointed out that if somebody's coming from a tripla to B tripla, um, that there is a problem with the repivirine being metabolized. So do you have any recommendation if somebody's going to make that switch to just double the dose at 50 for a couple of weeks and then? Yeah, so, so this would be kind of completely off-label and, and there, there are no data to support what I'm going to say, so, so you take it with a grain of salt. I can tell you that there is an ongoing study where people on boosted protease inhibitors are switching directly from um, their boosted protease inhibitor to Rilpivirine um, at, at its currently approved dose. So that study is ongoing. There's also a study, uh, a, a relatively small study of about 100 patients, patients going to a Favrins to Rilpivirine, again at, at the, uh, just a straight switch. Um, my concern about that study is if you do a small study and it looks okay, you know, your confidence interval around the success is going to be very wide. So um, is that really if you do a, phase, a larger study? Um, if I'm going to do it, I would probably give 25 milligrams of rilpivirine for, for two to four weeks. Now, the pushback I've gotten from my, my good friend Chuck Hicks at, at Duke is that, well, what about QT prolongation? The reason why we're giving rilpivirine at 25 milligrams and not at 75 milligrams or 150 milligrams, which were originally studied, is because there is some QT prolongation. Um, so, again, either way, you're kind of putting yourself on, on a limb, I think. Um, right. But if, if Mike asked me what I would do, which is off-label, not studied, I would actually give um, a, an extra dose of rilpivirine for, for two, weeks. two weeks or so. That Absolutely. makes sense. And I think the QTC story is there's a lot of drugs we give that prolong QTCs, and, uh, but for drugs in development, they sort of get labeled that way, and that's why they went to the lower dose. The final question is, um, if you had to just summarize your top three treatment messages for patients today, if they walk in the door, newly diagnosed, what's your top three things you tell them? Well, the first thing I tell almost every patient is that they should, you know, um, save for their kids' college, plan on retirement, get a life insurance policy, because if they can, they, they're going to live a long and healthy life. Um, if, if you know, we can work together, we meaning myself and, and the patient or, or the clinic staff and, and the patient. So I think that is the single most important message is that, that these therapies work and, and, and you will live a long time. I think the second message is um, that I tell people, and none of this has to do with antivirals, I tell them if you have a problem, you have to tell me. Um, I think a lot of patients, especially um, uh, perhaps uh, uh, in, in you know, the one-on-one -on -one office setting, 
you know, don't want to disappoint their clinician. I mean, we have all, everybody has a patient who goes on the internet every five minutes and is happy to disappoint us all the time by telling us how, how, how screwed up we are. But many patients are afraid. So the second thing I tell them, if something's wrong with what I'm going to give you, there are about ten different other things that we can give you. So, so, so that's, I think, the second uh, most important thing. And, and then um, the third message is the one everybody here gives, I'm sure, is, is about, you know, adherence. Um, yeah. So I think really those, I think, you know, if you pick one of the preferred regimens um, and, and, and you can work with your patient so that he or she, you know, can be successful, uh, you know, it will work. Yeah. Um, don't, don't take any wooden nickels. That's another right, one. Right. Uh, yeah, that's another right. one. Well, great. Thank you very much, Joe. All Wonderful. Right.